cracking straight in. Look, this passage, <laughs> I think it's Master Parker, who, who are you chopping up the passages, aren't you? And I always get the terrible ones of death and mayhem and murder and misery. Um, it's not quite as bad this time, but it is a mighty chunk. So I am actually going to read as much of it as possible. So if you have a Bible, it's on your phone, go to Exodus 12. We're going to pick it up from verse 31. I, as you know, look, I'm a bit old school and I brought my NASB out, which is it's a, it's an old school, really, version of the Bible. It's not quite King James, but the main reason I did it was, I know we've got a ropey lectern still and it's the only one that fits on. So... Um, Go to Exodus 12, verse 31, then I'm going to read it, and then I'm going to talk you through several points, more of a traditional sermon this morning, a few points which I think might help. Although, I need to forewarn you, my brain, which is weird at the best of times, went on massive tangents and weird avenues, and don't look, don't look too worried, Steve. I'm probably going to preach the Bible, but it did go in weird directions. Uh, there's a few things I felt the Lord might want to impress on us. So here we go. This is Exodus 12. Uh, one. To recap, um, the plagues have happened. Moses um, was going to Pharaoh saying, let my people go, so enslaved to Egypt. The plagues happened and Pharaoh was stubborn. And then we had the death of the firstborn. And then um, Pharaoh's like, get out of my country, get out. Take, just, just basically plunder us and go. Uh, and it says in Exodus 28, there was not a single household in Egypt where someone hadn't died. So there's this wail of grief and pain over the nation. And it's on that basis that God's people were released. And that's where we pick it up. Verse 31. Then he called for Moses and Aaron, chapter 12, at night and said, Rise up, get out from among my people, both you and the sons of Israel, and go worship the Lord as you had said. Take your flocks and your herds and go and bless me also. The Egyptians urged the people to send them out of the land in haste for they said we'll all be dead so the people took their dough before it was leavened with their kneading bowls bound up in the clothes on their shoulders that's basically saying they got out in a proper hurry like they just grabbed what they could and they went now the sons of Israel had done according to the word of Moses for they had requested from amongst the Egyptians articles of silver, articles of gold and clothing. That was the fulfilment of a prophecy which I preached on uh, a few weeks back uh, before the summer holidays. And the Lord had given the people favour in the sight of the Egyptians so that they let them have their request. Thus they plundered the Egyptians. Actually it had been said, it had been said to Pharaoh and they had said to the Egyptians by the time you're going to want us out you're going to give us everything you've got to get us out. That's exactly what happened. It's terrifying, isn't it? Now the sons of Israel journeyed from Ramesses to Succoth, about 600,000 men on foot, aside from children. So that's, it. that's a figure, because I only need to count the men. Sexist, I know, but that's the way it was. So I didn't count the men, 600,000 men, plus women, plus kids, plus also a mixed multitude, so a bunch of other people. This is a mass mobilisation of people. That is huge. That honestly, just imagine like a million people plus suddenly exiting a nation. This, this is massive stuff, and it's basically their enslaved workforce. But the logistical organisation behind that, I mean, it, it's honestly, this is a phenomenal activity. I think we can read over it in a sentence, and you don't realise the scale, scope, and extent of actually what's happening here. 
a very large number of livestock, it said. They baked the dough which they brought out of Egypt into cakes of unleavened bread, for it had not become leavened, since they were driven out of Egypt and could not delay, nor had they prepared any provisions for themselves. It's an utter chaos. Now the time that the sons of Israel lived in Egypt was about 430 years. That, that's a massive amount of time to be crying out to God for an answer. Just to read, I mean, that's not the main point of my talk, but as you read it, you can't ignore it. That these people enslaved for all that time were crying out to God all that time for an answer. We might chip up a prayer meeting and sling a couple of one-minute prayers up at best and then say, why has God not answered me prayer? It's a massive lesson. Where heaven, he- heaven hears. He hears you. But it, but it might take time. That's certainly been my experience. Because the Lord might need you to walk through rubble and all sorts of stuff. It may be generations and generations to pass before you see an answer to the Lord that blesses your family. I think, you know, when we plant churches, you can't plant a church with the thought this is going to be good in five years. I think a successful church plant is, is, will be, from my point of view, when I'm shuffling past on a Zimmer frame and there's thousands of people who got saved and it's still going. And you're like, oh, I think I was part of that once. Can't quite remember. The Alzheimer's creeping up on me. <laughs> but I think I used to go there. Because you built a legacy. You're built beyond your own life. And beyond your own ambitions and your own, end- and your own dreams. That's what I honestly think the work of God's about. They cried out 430 years. At the end of 430 years, to the very day, all the hosts of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. It's a night to be observed for the Lord, for having brought them out from the land of Egypt. This is a night for the Lord to be observed by all the sons of Israel throughout their generations. This is now the institution of the Feast of Passover. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, This is the ordinance of the Passover. No foreigner is to eat of it, but every man's slave purchases money. After you have circumcised him, then he may eat of it. A sojourner, or a, a, like a traveller or a hired servant, should not eat of it. It is to be eaten in a single house. You are not to bring forth any of the flesh outside the house, nor are you to break any bone of it. All the congregation of Israel are to celebrate this. Very precise instructions. Because right at the start of something like this, you, you need to put a boundary around it so it's remembered properly. It's an important point. You know, it, it wasn't because these things are particularly sacred. It's like, I, you, you must remember what happened here. Because people forget. So here's a few traditions that might help you. We'll come on to the power of traditions or not in a bit. And so these... Laws go on. Verse 50. Then all the sons of Israel did so they did just as the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron. And on that same day, the Lord brought the sons of Israel out of Egypt by their hosts. Chapter 13. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Sanctify to me every firstborn, the first offspring of every room among the sons of Israel, both of man and beast. It belongs to me. Moses said to the people, Remember this day in which you went out from Egypt from the house of slavery. Why? For, far, for by a powerful hand of the Lord brought you out from this place, and nothing leavened should be eaten. On this day, in the month of Abib, you are about to go forth. It shall be when the Lord brings you to the land of the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Amorite, and the Hevite, and the Jebusite, which he swore to your fathers to give you, a land flowing with milk and honey. 
Side point, God does not forget his promises. And he always finishes what he starts, even if you may not see it yourself. But that's a fact. And, and, and just as I stand here, I'm just thinking, you know, some of you got kids and they're not walking with the Lord, but you felt that God spoke to you once. The Lord don't forget. It might not be even in your lifetime, but you don't forget. There might be various things you felt the Lord genuinely say to you. Not weird prophetic stuff that's ungodly. I mean, genuine promises of God that are biblical and you're not quite seeing it. It doesn't mean to say it's not happening, or won't happen. It will happen if the Lord said it. But you might not always see it in the time that you expected. So here you're seeing the, the fulfilment or the beginnings of the fulfilment of these promises. Verse 6 of chapter 13. For seven days you shall eat unleavened bread, and on the seventh day there shall be a feast to the Lord. Unleavened bread shall be eaten throughout the seven days, and nothing leavened shall be seen among you, nor shall any leaven be seen among you in all your borders. And you should tell your son on that day, or your kids. I think probably your children, it says in the NIV. It's because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. It becomes personal. For me. And it shall serve as a sign to you on your hand and a reminder on your forehead that the law of the Lord may be in your mouth. For with a powerful hand the Lord brought you out of Egypt. Therefore you shall keep this ordinance at its appointed time from year to year. You get the feeling God really wants you to remember when he does something for you. And, and to ingrain it in your heart. He's really underlining it. Now when the Lord brings you to the land of the Canaanite, as he swore to you and to your fathers and gives it to you, you shall devote to the Lord the first offspring of every room, the first offspring of every beast that you own, and males belong to the Lord, but every first offspring of donkey you should redeem with a lamb. It's a foreshadowing of what's to come. But if you do not redeem it, then you should break its neck, and every firstborn man from among your sons you shall redeem. And it shall be when your son asks you in time to come, saying, What is this? Then you shall say to him, With a powerful hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt from the house of slavery. It came about when Pharaoh was stubborn about letting us go that the Lord killed every firstborn in the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of beast. Therefore I sacrifice to the Lord the males, the first offspring of every womb, but every firstborn of my sons I redeem. So it shall serve as a sign on your hand and on your forehead. For with a powerful hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt. Instituting a whole bunch of things so people won't forget. Let me rattle through these points, and I'm aware of time, so we'll try and do this as succinctly as possible. Number one, traditions are good, but they aren't sacred. I think that's really important. So in verse 39 of chapter 12, and verse th uh, chapter 13, verses 3 to 6, there's a lot of emphasis about eating bread that doesn't have yeast because the people had to move fast and didn't have time to put yeast in the dough and have bread that was to rise. It's not because the unleavened bread in and of itself was sacred. It was to serve as a reminder that once upon a time they left in a hurry and, and that's how it was for their ancestors. It was properly rough and hard, they had no provisions, they had to get out of Dodge super quick. 
So one day they'll be feasting, having a meal, and not to forget where they came from. Because there is power in founding stories, especially when it remembers that the Lord delivered you and the amazing and powerful things that the Lord did. You'll notice in Scripture, particularly Old Testament, the sovereignty of God is always very heavily emphasised. The Lord did this because of the power of the Lord. The Lord sent an evil spirit. The Lord did it. The Lord is sovereign. And so everything points back to God and his hand being at work. And God knows that people forget very, very quickly. I can remember when I landed my first job in London, I was going to Brethren Church in Hornchurch, just come out of uni, landed a properly good job in banking. There was above a graduate entrant, like in true beachy style, massively blagged it and got this really good job. And I was like, oh, how'd you do that? How'd you, how'd you do that? <laughs> like, there were all these graduate entrants, like grades above, and like, how'd you do that? And I'm like, well, you know, because I'm pretty cool. Because I'm, I'm but then this bloke, took me aside once and he went, no, 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 no. When I told him the job I got in this little brethren church, I can't remember his name now, but he had masses of like power hair. They're like wealth grey hair, power hair. And it, I met, that's what I remember about him. And he took me aside and he went, it was not you. It was the Lord. He gave you that job. So honour him with it. I remember feeling really chipped up. Like, no, well, it was me, because I, I, I aced the interview. But then and I felt really aggravated, but actually he was right. Anything good that happens is the Lord. And I, I think it's a really good way forward. I, I, I want to say to you, if you ever see, ever see anything good in me, that's Jesus. If you ever see anything bad in me, that's definitely me. And you learn that as you go along. And, and God wanted people to remember his goodness, that it was his hand at work. The problem comes when traditions become sacred. So my first experience, I love the Salvation Army, and some of the stuff I'm doing in Edge is modelled on early Salvation Army and the Booth years. A proper radical proclamation of the gospel to the poor and really helping people at their most acute points of need. I'm, I'm ripping all these ideas off. There's nothing we're doing is new. There's no copyright in the kingdom. So just taking the ideas of Wesley and Booth and regenerating it for the 21st century. Um, but I remember my first visit to a Salvation Army Corps in London. And the Corps is the building. And on the front, they have a wooden bench. You know the old gym benches at school? It's like them, but with a bit of padding. Padding on top and padding below. And I didn't realise what it was. Now, apparently, back in the day, when Booth would preach the gospel and people like him, people would have visions of hell opening up underneath their feet. And they'd like be be clinging to the mercy seat, the, the, the bench to stop themselves falling into hell. It'd be the place that people literally crawled to, weeping, to give their lives to Christ. Amazing. So because people were collapsing at the front, they basically built a bench. So people had somewhere to rest. That was it. You can rest your head on it. I, I, in my study, I use a little Ikea chair. I rest my head on the Ikea chair and I pray and run you all down. But they, they built these benches. When I first went into this Salvation Army Corps, I had a rucksack. I was doing some conference and I dumped it on the mercy seat and I sat on it. I just sat down on this bench at the front and someone came tearing in. This like, little old woman saying, Get off the mercy seat! <laughs> so I probably say, so I picked up my bag and slung my bag down. I'm like, My iPad's in that. <laughs> I slung my bag off and started shouting at me. And then and I was really like, Oh. Anyway. My mate came over, who was, in the, who was like the major or whatever in the Saudi Army, came and he went, 
He said, he said you, can't, you can't touch it. You can't see it and it'll put your bag on it. I mean, it's a bench. I mean, no, it's, it's, the mercy, it's the mercy seat. And he explained what it was. I thought, that's amazing. What was once something that was used to facilitate people kneeling to pray for the Lord has now become an untouchable, sacred item, which was never Booth's intention. There's a story called The Cat and the Rope, which I might have told some of you before, but I'll be very quick. There's a story that hundreds of years ago in a church in Chesterfield, this new rector tripped over a cat on the way to preach and broke his arm. So the, the warden, when the rector had recovered, found the cat and tied it to a column in the church with a bit of rope. So, and the rector came in with his recovered arm and went, oh, thank you very much, warden. I went to preach because the feral, you know, danger cat had been lashed to a column. Anyone who's got a cat will know that they're always trying to kill you. So this is a good thing. Hundreds of years later, hundreds of years later, the new rector for the Anglican church in Chesterfield walks in and sees the warden scurrying around trying to find a cat and finds a cat outside. Nicks Dorothy's cat and lashes it to a column by the lectern with a bit of rope. And the rector's like, what did you do that for? We said, that's what we always do here. And what was once done as a good thing has now become a weird tradition. People have a habit of doing that. And my tangential mind went to that as I read this amazing institution of the Passover, which was once meant to be something that was full of joy, an amazing memory to the rescue work of God, now becomes something that has to be observed in minute detail, actually misses what it may be, it was meant to be, all be about. And that can happen here. People do not like change. People like things done in certain ways. And some things become sacred. The way we worship. Well, we, we, normally, we normally have three songs at the start, Janet. You only did two. And people actually, I've seen it. Why did we, only, we only had one song at the start this morning. We don't normally do communion like that. It's very easy for these things to happen. Beware traditions. They can be good because they ground us, but they aren't sacred. The second thing is to beware religion. If you were to read, well, we shall, if you were to dart to Matthew 23, um, this is Jesus, in verse 1, having a go at the Pharisees. Then Jesus spoke to the crowds, to his disciples, saying, The scribes and the Pharisees have seated themselves in the chair of Moses. Therefore, all they tell you, do and observe, but they do according to their deeds. They say things and they don't do them. They tie up heavy burdens and lay them on men's shoulders. But they themselves are unwilling to move them with so much as a finger. But they do all their deeds to be noticed their men. For they broaden their flatteries and lengthen the tassels of their garments. They love the place of honour at banquets. And the chief sits in the synagogues. And so it goes on. I don't know if that sounds familiar. But that's exactly what the Lord was telling them to do here. It actually says in my version... It shall serve as a sign on your hand and as your flatteries on your forehead through the powerful hand the Lord brought us out of Egypt. 
The phylactery is like the leather thing that they tie in morning prayers around their heads, the Orthodox Jews. They, they tie the prayer box around their head with little scrolls in to remind them of the power of God in delivering them and being with them and saving them. And what he's saying here is, oh no, hundreds of years later, thousands of years later, it becomes a symbol of how godly I am. The bigger me flattery on me, <laughs> the more holy I am. Oh, the longer my prayers, the holier I am. It's amazing how a little thing that the Lord says could be used as a justification later for actually something that could become quite oppressive and horrible. It's very easy for men and women to fall into that trap. And that's why Jesus said, come to me all you who are weary and burdened, I will give you rest. We use it often after our day shopping at Meadowell. Oh, the Lord will give me rest and give me some peace. Actually, it was a relief from the burden of religion. I mean, we're not going to go into all the micro laws of the Pharisees today and stuff. But actually, what I'm trying to show you is the things that were said here, which were good and noble and godly, can easily be corrupted over time if you lose the heart for Christ, a softness in front of the Spirit, you keep your heart supple, and you don't get bound down by religion, but you just keep your heart full of the life of Christ. These things are to guide us, they're to help us. They don't become the dominating factor. I, I've been so like frustrated sometimes, even over the, the COVID period, where, where people have put meetings and the way we meet ahead of keeping your life right before Christ. That, that actually is the most important thing. A meeting is important. It's, it's super important. That's why we're here. But actually, it's keeping your heart right before the Lord which is the most important thing. You're keeping your heart soft and full of life. And I'm just wondering what the silly traps of religion are for us today. Bigger Bibles. Big Bibles with big letter binding with lots of bookmarks in. Loud prayers. When I was in the Brethren Church in the early years of my faith, the louder the prayer and the more theological the language, you were definitely more holy and qualified to become an elder. It was silly. The more you wave your hands in the air like a windmill, the godlier I am. Or perhaps the more earnest and sombre you come across. You know, because you're acting like a sort of like an Old Testament priest. And you feel that that's got to be full of like misery and earnestness. We've just got to keep our hearts right, haven't we? Because the things that were said here were corrupted later on. Third thing I'll say, there is a counterfeit. And you can't read this without recognising what's in Revelation 13. So, do you notice, in the Exodus uh, passages, it says, it'll become a sign on your hand and a sign on your head. Well, the enemy will always try and counterfeit what is of God. So, uh, this is Revelation 13, uh, talking about the beast coming out of the sea. It says in verse 12, he exercises all authority, he makes the earth and those who dwell in it to worship the beast whose fatal wound was healed. He performs great signs so that he even makes fire come down out of heaven in the presence of men. And he deceives those who dwell on the earth because of the signs which was given him to perform in the presence of the beast. And so it goes on. And it says he causes all, the small, the great, the rich, the poor, the free men and the slaves to be given a mark on their right hand or on their forehead. <laughs> the enemy, he loves to rip off what the Lord would do. So whereas God says, 
this will be a sign on your hand and a sign on your head of my goodness and my faithfulness and my power to rescue. The enemy uses a sign on the wrist or the hand and on your head as a sign or mark of oppression. I'm not going to go into what the mark of the beast is. It is not barcodes. That thing is absolutely clear. That is not what it is. But what the most important thing is, the enemy will mimic what is of God. Isn't that amazing that right at the start of the Bible, God institutes a sign, and right at the end of the Bible, the enemy tries to rip it off. And right at the start of the Bible, God delivers the people through signs and wonders. And they escalate in their, I mean, the, the conjurers managed to mimic the first ones that Moses did, but then they escalated. Well, Satan then does the same thing at the end of all time. He mimics his signs and wonders. I find that quite fascinating. They're like mirror opposites. What God will do, the enemy will mimic. He's not creative in and of himself. He rips off what is of God and corrupts it and uses it to bring death. And, and I know this is a bit tangential, but I did feel that I wanted to say this today because reading the news and looking at social media and the things that people are saying and the stuff that I'm seeing spilling out there amongst Christians at the moment, I feel that more than ever we need discernment. You must not be deceived. And the only way you won't is, is, is sound doctrine and, and worshipping in spirit and truth and, and not throwing your brain away. We have a problem in our culture, and I've just got to say it like it is. We validate anything that's supernatural. If someone performs something supernatural or vaguely miraculous, we go, oh yeah, that must be the Lord. No. No, no, no. It could be the work of men or the work of Satan, which is why we need a gifted sermon. I'm, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to call this out because I think we, need, we just need to be very wise in these times because things are accelerating. I've seen footage of glory clouds on YouTube, of, of people worshipping in clouds of gold dust. Like in Bethel Church in California, I've seen it, and I very rarely do this and name other churches, but I feel it's so important because it's leading people astray. They did an analysis on it. It's plastic. It's plastic. I've been in a church where someone said they were given a gold tooth, and a dentist came up to me afterwards and went, this is terrible, I, I fitted that in that woman 10 years ago. And it's not a joke. If God wants to give a glory cloud, he can do it. He can. Like, he could. If he wanted us to sprinkle us with gold, he could. But I don't think he'd use plastic. I don't. I don't think he'd use glitter. You can get out of Woolworths if it's not. You don't think he does that. I think we've got to be so careful. Because it actually destroys people's faith in the end. Because when it gets uncovered, people who put their faith, hope, trust in that and not Christ, they, they fall away. I've seen people come to Christ on false testimonies. They're fake testimonies. And it's wounded them. Some people have get through that. And I know there are one or two here who have experienced that. And others don't. And that's why we have to test and approve. Because as the end times accelerate... So the counterfeit will arise. Am I knocking that church in and of itself? Not necessarily. But you should not validate what is not of God. Doesn't mean so that every person there is deceived. No, no, no. But we must be so careful. We must be so careful. For me, 
True miracles fueled by the power of the Spirit are preceded by incredible salvation. What follows is incredible salvation. And what precedes is, is just broken hearts and love for Jesus and the poor. That, that, that's what I see in Scripture. I do want to tell you this story very quickly because I think this is, this is the promise of God. I once preached the gospel at, at, at the gathering event, which the pineapple originates from, just to tie that in, um, where a bloke gave his life to Christ on a day he had actually marked in his diary to kill himself. And he marked it months ago and left it in his Land Rover in a field where he'd, he'd left a Land Rover there. He's a, a property guy. He was going to go to that field. He's going to gas himself to death in that Land Rover. And he left a diary with a date marked. He was going to kill himself. And by hook or by crook, a mate of mine took him to the gathering. He, he thought he was going to a men's curry night, ended up at the gathering. <laughs> not to buying clothes and tents and everything. And, and, he, and I literally saw him run forward, weeping at the cross, gave his life to Christ. When he went back to Land Rover, he realised it was a day he planned to kill himself, couldn't believe it. But also, it, the field uh, that he was facing was a field that he'd said, if, if, I, if, I, if I can't buy this by a certain date, that's not going to end my life. It's a big complicated story. Anyway, he now owns that field and runs a glamping business on it and the Lord properly restored his life and all that kind of stuff. That happened in Swindon. Um, I was preaching at Creation Fest three weeks ago, preach, I get the gospel slot at Creation Fest, preaching the gospel in a field. And um, a whole, it was lovely. A whole bunch of people came forward to get saved. It was, really, it was lovely. But I always like to get off the stage and pray for people. Long story short, I, I'm praying for people who are giving their lives to Christ for the first time. It was, it was a great moment, very moving. And this woman came over to me and said, you need to pray for that little boy who's been ignored. And I went over to this little boy. This little, I said, how old are you? And he went, nine I said, is your mum and dad here? He went, oh yeah, they're over there somewhere. I went, that's good, safeguarding. So right then, I said, someone needs to come and pray for me. I went, what's your name? He goes, George. I went, why have you come forward, George? He went, I want to give my life to Jesus. I went, why do you want to give your life to Jesus, George? He went, because of what you said. I want to follow Jesus all my life. He starts weeping before the Lord, this little lad. It's just beautiful. So we prayed with him. We said some nice things to him. And then he got up and he, I said, go and find your parents and tell them what you've done. And this little lad, George, I mean, it's one of these awkward gospel preachers where they're like six-year-olds and 70-year-olds, you know. So I just went for it anyway. And he went running back to his, his mum and dad and saw him jump into the arms of that bloke who'd given his life to Christ who planned to kill himself at a gathering uh, in 2016. And um, this is an event that happens hundreds of miles apart and he just happened to be there. But he's saying, he didn't know I was preaching the gospel that night. And I went over to him and went, Sean, I went, this is incredible. To be able to witness household salvation like that. You know, his partner had then come to Christ, and now his little lad had come to Christ, and God had totally restored his life. That's a miracle. That's a miracle. We need to be wise. If what you are seeing does not point you to Christ, break your heart for the lost, uh, soften your heart to the poor, I would suggest you it is not of God. If it is for a moment and a buzz, I don't have much time for it. It will increase, so be careful. I'm wary that this talk will go out on YouTube, and I know that some people will criticise that I've named uh, something there. I'm not saying everything that happens there. I can't say everything that happens there is ungodly. I can't. But what I do say is be wise, be careful, because some people's faith is being greatly injured. For tell your children chapter 13 verse 14 it says when your sons come to you when your children come to you tell them the stories very quickly i believe and there's no software to put this 
if you're a parent or planning on having kids or you're a spiritual parent or you're around kids, so that's basically all of us, it is your duty as a parent, spiritual parent or not, to build knowledge of God and pass it on. That, that is a key responsibility above all other responsibilities. To tell the stories of what God does, you've actually got to have them. And that means you've got to live it and then you've got to pass it on. And that's how you see generational and household salvation. And I think as a church, as churches, we have a responsibility. All of us have a responsibility to children to pass on the stories of God. I, I spent a lot of time with my kids um, telling them the things that I'd seen God do. There are mostly salvation stories, to be honest with you, because they're the only ones that I've got. And bizarre stories being chased by wild dogs through Cambodia in the cause of preaching the gospel, which they quite like that one. So I used to tell them the stories and pass them on. But here it seems clear that what God says in these verses, tell them what, you know, he goes through what God did historically. Tell them how I, how I did this. So we must, I believe, do the same. Next point, uh, it does speak about the Passover being a celebration. And very quickly, I just want to say, the end result of following the Lord, uh, following his ordinances and pursuing him wholeheartedly should not be misery. But it should be a celebration of joy at how amazing God is. Um, so if your faith is characterized by feeling stressed out and earnest and full of angst, because good things are not happening or because you're trying to be holy and like a monk, you're probably getting something a little bit wrong. It's why Jesus said, come to me all who are weary and I'll give you rest. There is meant to be joy in following Christ. There, 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 you know, and I always say to people, my, my mantra is probably the wrong word. It's a bit Buddhist, isn't it? But my, one of my mantras is, um, I don't actually deep down take myself that seriously, but I take the mission very seriously. I sometimes make hard decisions or can come across as terse and blunt because I take the mission of God very seriously, but actually I don't take myself very seriously at all. There should be joy in following Christ. And we, we shouldn't be churches that tie heavy loads on people. And finally, we do not have a Passover feast, but we do have communion, which you are not taking today, uh, obviously. Um, but, we, but God has given us a mechanism by which we remember him. And as I've pondered uh, on this a lot over lockdown when we weren't able to meet, it's weird, actually. Out of all the things I missed, I miss people and I miss worshipping and I miss corporately studying the Bible together and I miss, to be honest with you, a lot of us just like the cup of tea afterwards and having a chat with each other and catching up on news. But I tell you, one of the things I really missed was communion and the way we used to do it. Though we'd only build a tradition out of it. You know, just people mingling together and breaking bread and, and remembering Christ and what he's done. And I, 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 I'm feeling these days that... Um, we should take it more often than not. You know, in our small groups, little community groups, wherever we are, when we, when we meet and pray together, when you have people over for a meal, Christians over for a meal. You know, I, do we do this thing, don't we, as Christians, middle-class Christians, we, 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 break, we sort of say a prayer of thanks that we never do normally when people haven't come over for a meal, <laughs> if you're honest. Like we often you know, give thanks when, when we have guests around. Well, I didn't do it more. Do it in your homes, break bread around the table and, and remember Christ. Because our, our rescue story is Christ. Our rescue story is that for God so loved the world he gave his only begotten son. So whoever believes in him shall be lost forever, eternal life, etc. etc. I, I, I think that's 
that for me is becoming more and more and more important to break bread together and remember him. And I appreciate that not all of you here are in Christian households, which makes it even more important to invite people to join together in order to do that uh, more often than perhaps we have done in the past. There, end of the preach. Sorry if it takes so long. I uh, hope it was helpful. God bless you. Thank you.